Um, and I served as general consultant on the, on the Q4 campaign. And my name is Matt Allen. I'm the field director at the ACLU of Massachusetts. And we did some work in terms of uh, creating a racial justice analysis to support the campaign, looking at the disparities in marijuana arrests in Massachusetts, uh, and also doing other work to mobilize the graduates <laughs> to get that passed. And I'm Will Lozier. I was the campaign manager for uh, Yes on 4 to tax and regulate marijuana. And I'm currently the political director of the Yes on 4 coalition, uh, which has been working with the legislature and now with the Cannabis Control Commission to uh, make sure that the will of the people is respected as much as possible. So what I wanted to do today was talk about the campaign, you know, how we won, um, what we, you know, what we faced in opposition. Then I want to talk about the landscape today, because I know many of you are interested in that, what, what's happening right now in Massachusetts, how we foresee the market, uh, like, you know, shaping out. Um, and it's been, um, it's been tough, frankly. Um, just to set the table on what happened after we, uh, after the election, um, almost immediately after the election, um, the new law came under attack. Um, it was passed, again, by 54% of the voters. In Massachusetts, the way uh, ballot referenda work, um, once you get a sufficient amount of uh, signatures and you get your um, language, your ballot question certified by the Attorney General's office, it goes to the legislature as a bill. The legislature can vote it up or vote it down. They can't change it. They vote it up or down. We testified before the legislature. We said, we want you to do this. We want you to do it so we don't have to go to the voters. You should do it. Look what's happening in the rest of the country. Look what's happening in Canada. Look what's happening in other countries. They did nothing. That's most legislators, most legislatures don't do anything. Um, and then, once it was passed, they decided they were gonna do something. They punted, then they wanted the ball back. So they did do something. The first thing they did, they delayed implementation by six months. Uh, they did it in what's called informal session. They don't even have to all meet. There's just a handful of legislators. Uh, they met and they delayed it for six months. We have, by the way, we had the same timeline as every other state that has passed a legalization measure. They had a year. Um, other states, you know, got their systems up and running within a year. Nevada kicked it, you know, they actually accelerated their timeline. Massachusetts, to my knowledge, was the only state to officially delay by six months. The idea, what legislators said time and time again, we want to get this right. We have to do this, we want to get it right. They never acknowledged that. We thought that the law that was passed actually was very good. Uh, we didn't think that it needed any um, uh, alterations, and we still don't feel that it needed. We look at what happened in the legislature as uh, not an improvement to the bill. Uh, we think now the law, frankly, isn't as strong as it was when it was passed by voters, but that's the law, and that's what we live with. Um, one thing that the law did was make it easier for towns to opt out, and that's a problem. That's what we're seeing now in Massachusetts. We ended prohibition, and now we're seeing, you know, a move to create patchwork prohibition. We're seeing a lot of towns and some, what the legislature did was gave the power in some towns to selectmen um, the ability to opt out or to put a moratorium. So we've seen a lot of bans already, and we've seen quite a few uh, moratoriums passed. Some are for one year, some are for two. Um, it's difficult from a grassroots level to fight 
you know, 30 or 40 campaigns. It's a lot of organization. It's a lot of money. Um, you know, as tough as our campaign was, it was one campaign, you know. Um, so what we're dealing with now is trying to figure out, you know, where to put resources, how do we cultivate opposition to ban or moratorium measures in certain towns. Um, and that's something that we're dealing with now. Um, so for entrepreneurs to move forward, I mean, the, the game now is with the Cannabis Control Commission. They, that is the uh, organization that's going to oversee the whole industry in Massachusetts. They're going to write the regulations. They're going to devise the application process. They're doing that right now. Um, they should have started six months ago, but again, the legislature pushed that back. Uh, if they meet their timelines, uh, and they, we do feel that they are uh, sincere in wanting to meet their timelines, despite the fact that the governor and the Speaker of the House and the Attorney General and the Mayor of Boston all opposed uh, our question, and in fact formed the official opposition campaign against our campaign. Uh, the Attorney General wasn't involved in that, but the other three were. Um, so, the funny thing is, we have a brand new industry that's going to pump billions of dollars into the Massachusetts economy and create, well, I saw the estimate yesterday, $240 million of new revenue, tax revenue, by the year 2021, with no recognition whatsoever from our top elected officials in the state. It's kind of an odd dynamic. Um, so that's where we are now in Massachusetts. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, let's get to the campaign. Um, I want to have Chris explain a little bit. For all political campaigns, you know, we started with a particular message in mind. We called ourselves the uh, campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol. That was our goal. Uh, that was ultimately what we wanted to see. We wanted to see cannabis regulated just like alcohol. And we set up a structure similar to the uh, system that regulates alcohol in Massachusetts. Um, but during the campaign, our message changed a little bit. Polling and focus groups, you know, gave us messages that worked better. Not that the prior messages didn't work, but we, you know, like any campaign, you look at the data. Um, and Chris helped us form that data and helped us shape, you know, the, the transition of our message a little bit, which ultimately proved very effective. Sure. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of ballot campaigns. I've done a lot of um, ballot campaign work and. The rule of thumb typically is that the yes campaign is going to come down seven to ten points over the course of a campaign. Because essentially, um, if you're voting yes, you're voting to change something. If you're voting no, you're voting for the status quo. So if somebody gets uneasy about an issue, has doubts about it, is confused about it, they tend to default to no. So um, that wasn't the case with marijuana in Massachusetts, and nor from what I've seen really across the country. Our first poll, which was um, 18 months out, came back with 56% supporting legalization. So we went down two points. Over the course of the campaign, the polling did dip at, at certain points below 50. Um, it, then it came back again. But that again is a trend we've seen nationally. Folks know where they stand on legalization. It's not, it's not a tricky issue. People are typically for or against it and they know why. Um, so our job in the campaign was really to make people feel comfortable with where they already were. We weren't trying to turn um, opponents into proponents. So um, we started out with this frame of regulating marijuana like alcohol, which is good because it gives people an idea of what you're trying to do. But then when we got into focus groups, 
um, we did focus groups among soft yes supporters. So you had about um, 35, maybe 40% of the electorate who was strong supporter, on board, gonna vote yes no matter what. Then you had this squishy 15 to 20% that um, thought they would, but you know, they were a little bit uneasy about it. So we knew that they were where we needed to target our communication. So we got into focus groups of them and what really resonated and what we heard from a lot of moms especially was it's already here. This, you know, we're not talking about bringing something new and my kids can get marijuana easier than they can get alcohol already. Um, so that was one thing we realized really re resonated with folks. Another thing that um, we, we were uncovered through the research was um, people understood the social injustice um, of locking people up for marijuana and they understood the fact that um, black and Latino people were lo locked up at high, far higher rates. The ACLU um, was, was so helpful in compiling this data and it, it's, 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 to, uh, it's black and white. You see the data, you can't argue with it. Um, you know, and, and it's not because black and Latinos are using marijuana at higher rates. Um, if anything, maybe whites are using it a little bit more, but they're not the ones getting locked up. So that really resonated with folks. Um, and then the third uh, sort of pillar of messaging that we identified was folks, folks just didn't feel that the medical system was working. So this is, the, ironically, the fact that opposition from the political establishment and political leaders, I think most people would argue is why medical was so bungled coming out of the gate and why it wasn't working very well a year or two ago, that sort of boomerang got them because people saw this, they recognized the medical benefits, um, and they didn't think that the medical system was, as operating Massachusetts, was delivering those benefits. So those turned into the three pillars, pillars of our campaign um, that we used, drove home in our paid media and in all of the earned media whenever we could. Um, and uh, it, it gave people, that were the soft, yes, confidence that they were doing the right thing. And essentially, you know, we weren't, we weren't converting people, we were making people feel comfortable with where they already were. Um, another thing Jim and the, the spokespeople for the campaign spent a lot of time doing was beating back fear tactics. You know, there, there was so much scare, the V for Madness thing coming out again, and um, voters didn't believe it. And I think that, they, I think that the opposition may be overplayed their hands a little bit with some of their communications and lost credibility. Um, so that, that, at the highest level, that's the messaging strategy that we worked with, um, and, and it's going to work. Um, we were talking earlier before we came in, um, in, in 2020, the next presidential cycle, that'll be the first time on the Massachusetts ballot in 12 years that there won't be a, a marijuana um, ballot item. In 2008, we had the decriminalization uh, ballot measure which passed um, by, I think, better than 60%. In 2012, we had the medical marijuana law that, again, passed by better than 60%. And uh, last year, we had uh, the uh, adult use marijuana. Um, so 2020, unless there's something I'm not <coughs> seeing, uh, we're probably going to have nothing on the ballot. Uh, but Massachusetts has, that's been the stepping stone toward where we are now. Uh, Matt Allen was involved and uh, uh, was one of the top leaders in the um, medical campaign in 2012, and he was a great asset to our campaign. So he's been through two of these um, and has to put up with all the frustrating reefer madness stuff that comes out from all the usual suspects. 
Um, so Matt, why don't you give us a perspective on how 2012 maybe helped set up 2016 and how the medical rollup has gone or not gone? Sure, sure. Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, um, you know, I started working on these issues in Massachusetts around 2006 during the decriminalization ballot initiative, but we were already building on a lot of work that had been done by MassCan. I see some leaders from that have been involved in this efficacy from long before any of us at this table were, uh, such as Kara and others in the room. Um, so we did have the benefit of um, you know, a lot of outreach and, and organizing that had been done over the years. With medical marijuana, I think the, one of the reasons that um, we were able to, to raise the funds, and, you know, that's a big part of this kind of work of doing ballot initiatives, is, is the money. Um, we've been working, you know, facing these roadblocks in the legislature, and I think that's common uh, across the country because legislators are afraid of being perceived as soft on crime or soft on drugs. So no matter what kind of data we have, they're reluctant to get on the bandwagon. So we're, we're lucky here to have the ballot initiative process in Massachusetts that not all states have. Um, just, just out of curiosity to kind of figure out you know, who we're talking to, can we have a show of hands if folks are from Massachusetts or live in Massachusetts right now? Okay, so all right, well that makes sense since we're in Massachusetts and the rest of you are. And, and, and do we have mostly, can you raise your hand if you're uh, a uh, cannabis entrepreneur? All right, half, an, an advocate? Just someone curious about, about the issue? All right, so we've got, we've got a good mix, but, but I, I did want to know about the geographic diversity because wondering if folks are looking to learn um, some things to bring back to your home state to start such a campaign uh, there, or more interested in what's specifically going on here in Massachusetts. It does look like we've got a, a lot of local folks. Um, so you know, one of the reasons I think we were able to, to raise the money to get out of legislature and do the initiative with medical marijuana is uh, that we're able to bring on a lot of public health endorsers and really give the issue some legitimacy beyond you know, the, the, the old tired stereotypes. When it came to uh, legalization, again, we were lucky to have the, uh, uh, the benefit of a lot of hard work that had been done by a lot of grassroots groups. And as well, we're lucky that uh, the Marijuana Policy Project did a great job of soliciting input uh, about the language you know, up to I think a couple of years before, or even more before the vote, they, they were reaching out and saying, hey, we want to be active here in Massachusetts and we want some input about what that language looked like. So that when the ACLU uh, came aboard and started emphasizing the social justice angle, there was already provisions that were written into the language uh, so that this wasn't going to be an empty message. And what I mean by that is, of course, you know, we're able to document disparity in policing around uh, marijuana. But what was, what's really innovative uh, in the current uh, law is provisions that were demanded by grassroots activists among communities of color who said that you know, we need to make sure that some of the benefits of this new market go back to communities that, that have been targeted by the drug war. So that meant when we were saying, hey, there's disparities in enforcement, and this law is, you know, passing this law is a way to address that, it, there was actually substance there. But right now we have the hard work, and hopefully most of you guys know this, but there was just a hearing this morning uh, in Dudley Square held by the Cannabis Control Commission. So there's going to be a whole series of hearings through the rest of the month that, 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 that uh, you know, it's important for everyone to get out to to make sure that uh, we get good provisions and regulations. And regulations are really going to affect you know, how the law essentially operates. When it came to medical marijuana, um, we passed the law, but there were many issues that, that, that could have gone awry with the regulations, including acts uh, ensuring that PTSD was a covered condition. 
ensuring that uh, uh, pediatric patients could have access to medical marijuana, um, ensuring that the limit, the possession limit for patients wasn't going to be too low that it was uh, meaningless, uh, making sure that there was reasonable regulations around access to dispensaries and patients could go to more than one dispensary. Uh, all these issues were, were up for debate, and so we organized heavily. It turned out about 70 uh, patients over the course of a couple of months to get wins on all those, those issues that I mentioned. So the same thing is happening right now for uh, the, the you know, adult use initiative. There's a lot of questions that could be that are up in the air, and the initiative could really be run off the roads if opponents ha have their way this regulatory writing process, and they will be out in force. So please check out the, the hearings coming up. You can find the Cannabis Control Commission hearings on, on the website and figure out what issues are, are important to you and come out and, and talk about those. And then there's going to be another round of hearings after that commission promulgates draft regulations. So whether you're an entrepreneur or just a concerned citizen or someone who's interested in you know, recreational use for yourself and your peers, we've got to get out to these hearings and we've got to read those draft regulations when they come out. There's going to be issues there because these uh, policymakers, you know, they're, they're generally, it's pretty easy to figure out what they're going to do. They're going to hear from opponents, they're going to hear from supporters, and they're going to pick positions in the, exactly in the middle. Uh, of all those issues, and so it's up to us to make sure that uh, um, you know we're, we're advocating for sensible regulations. And the other thing I would say, again, going back to, to medical marijuana and what, what emphasizing what Jim said or reiterating what Jim said about local uh, local control, that was an area as well with medical marijuana where we you know have been organizing for years. So we had a good database of local advocates to push back against these uh, uh, efforts to prohibit at the local level. I mean, generally. We see towns where uh, the vote won, won in the landslide, but the folks who are coming out of voting, you know, at a presidential election or on a ballot initiative, are not the same folks who are very involved at city council hearings on the local level. And so, even towns like Newton, for instance, that were heavily in favor, had stiff opposition when it came to, uh, to getting the local uh, ordinance through. Now there is a dispensary there, but we were able to push back. But it took, it took a lot of work. I was on the ground in, in for a couple months, full time, going door to door, talking to people about what, who, who they knew in the community that might, come, might want to come out, and educating folks about these upcoming hearings. Most of our supporters just just don't really know a lot about that local level stuff. So probably more likely to be reading articles about what's going on in the White House and getting pissed off about that than being aware of a you know hearing that's going to be down the street. So I encourage you guys, no matter where you're coming from, to to follow what's going on at the local level and prepare for that. You know, it's not just a matter of you getting up and testifying, but you know, spend some time over the next six months to make some connections in your community, go to a war committee hearing, talk to your neighbors, and so when that hearing does come up, you can bring three or four people. That's enough to make a difference in these, in these local level hearings. Um, so that's some important work that has to be done uh, moving forward. And one thing uh, that we saw during the campaign, and we're continuing to see, is tactics like holding an information seminar in a town. Um, and billing it as just that, a seminar, or a listening session, or a, um, uh, just an information session about cannabis. And then you look at who's presenting, and it's like a prohibitionist you know, dream. It's people who um, are 
you know, sometimes Board of Health people who are going to say the same reefer madness stuff they always say. Often it was uh, a state legislator who uh, served on a particular committee, but is an out-and-out prohibitionist. We saw the same names time and time again. Uh, they would be introduced as somebody who served on the Select uh, Committee on Marijuana Policy. Um, and it gave them some credibility, but they were prohibitionists before they were named to that committee, they were prohibitionists while they were on the committee, and they're still prohibitionists after the committee's been disbanded. Um, and during the campaign, we would call, and we would say, well, we'd like to be part of this also. And they'd say, well, no, we have the speaker program set. And we'd say, well, it's so biased that this isn't, you can't possibly build this as an information session. It's not, it is biased. It's slanted toward the prohibitionist stance. And they would say, well, you're free to have your own session if you want it, but our, here, our panel is set. Uh, we saw that time and time again. In fact, the district attorney's offices across the state were hosting these, and they would pick the people who would speak, and it was all prohibitionist, you know, you know rapidly anti-cannabis uh, 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 people, chiefs of police, um, the DAs. Uh, people like that. Um, we're, see we're still seeing it. There was, a, there was a session like this down the Cape just last week in which uh, it was the same crowd of people. And um, they're, not, they're not presenting to the, the taxpayers or the municipal officials uh, the right information. They're not presenting to them the economic benefits for the town, the public safety benefits for the town, or the social justice benefits for the town. It's just not happening. Um, we faced that during the campaign, and as Matt pointed out, you have to watch for that right now. If, that, if, a, if a hearing like that, or, or a listening session, or an information seminar is happening in your town, please attend. And don't be afraid to point out that this is not a neutral setting. This is geared toward one thing, you know, to deliver the same fear uh, uh, rhetoric that we heard time and time again. Um, and as one of the things that, that helped us a lot was building a coalition. We had a lot against us. Uh, and I want Will to talk a little bit about, you know, who were our opponents. Uh, not only, you know, the top elected officials in the state who took the unprecedented move, not just opposing, but actually forming the opposition committee, um, and all the other institutions that came out against us. Um, and who we sort of combined and put together in order to make our own coalition. Not as big, you know, but we won. So uh, maybe we'll can talk a little bit about that. So first of all, thanks to every one of you who voted uh, on November 8th last, last year uh, uh, for question four. Uh, thanks to you and the 1.8 million other people who voted uh, uh, to legalize marijuana in Massachusetts. Um, you know, uh, Jim, Jim's comments just now made me think of a, a panel that I was on. Um, there were uh, four prohibitionists and me, um, and the moderator was a minister, um, and he said, uh, when he introduced me, he said, I hope you don't feel like Daniel in the lion's den. And, and I said, well, yeah, I really do feel that way. Um, we, we did have, um, as Jim said, uh, powerful opposition. Uh, the governor, the attorney general, the Speaker of the House, the Mayor of the City of Boston, 119 state representatives and state senators who signed a letter opposing question four. Um, but I was asked a question when uh, we filed the uh, petition and had a, uh, a 
press conference, I was asked the question, well, what about all these powerful politicians being against this? And I said, um, and I'm a, a deadhead, and there's a, there's a line in a, a Grateful Dead song that says, those who lead must follow. Uh, and so I said, look, they, they have the right to their opinions. They have, um, they have one vote. Uh, everybody has one vote going into the ballot box. And we'll just, we're taking this one to the people. Um, and so uh, we, we had opposition from the Catholic Church. We had opposition from public, uh, Massachusetts Public Health Association. We had opposition from uh, uh, a number of different uh, local, local uh, uh, drug prevention groups uh, and, and uh, a, a statewide drug prevention group that sort of brought all those people together. Um, uh, you know, it, it's hard to remember all of the opposition that we had. Um, but as I said during the campaign, 80 years of uh, prohibitionist propaganda is tough to, shred, to shrug off. And um, so uh, what we did was uh, uh, we made sure that we, and back up for a minute, Jim and I worked for the Marijuana Policy Project. And uh, they were the people who sponsored uh, this, um, standing on the shoulders of uh, many other people um, who have done this work for many years. Um, and we were also lucky, very, very lucky, to have um, the resources of uh, New Approach PAC, uh, which is a, uh, an organization that um, it, it was formed uh, from the legacy of Peter Lewis, progressive uh, insurance CEO, um, who pretty much funded the medical project, if, if I understand correctly. Um, and uh, so uh, we had uh, a great amount of resources from them, and and they're to be thanked, too, for uh, their support. Also, MPP is, is to be thanked for um, the uh, stuff that, um, that putting us on the ground and allowing us to, uh, to uh, make sure that this initiative had the, uh, the support that it needed. So we, put, we cobbled together some, uh, some folks from law enforcement, uh, LEAP, which, is, which used to stand for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Now they've changed their name to something else. But, uh, we, we had some doctors' organizations that um, were involved. The uh, Doctors uh, for Cannabis Regulation is a national group. Um, and uh, we had the support of one of my heroes, Lester Grinspoon, who um, many years ago in the early 70s wrote a, a book called Marijuana Reconsidered. Um, and he's a, a psychiatrist um, uh, on the staff at uh, Harvard Medical School. Um, and uh, you know, we we tried to develop some some other messaging. We had um, the endorsement of um, who's the guy from uh, uh, the rock group uh, that uh, was at Fenway Park. I forget the guy's name. Um, uh, help me out here. Eddie Vedder. Eddie Vedder. Yeah, Eddie Vedder. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. From from the stage uh, at uh, Fenway Park. Uh, endorsed our uh, campaign, uh, and uh, he was he was probably I early on I tried to get Arl Guthrie to endorse, but um, he never answered my email. So uh, th those are the kinds of folks that we re reached out to. Um, we had um, a couple of nurses organizations that endorsed us, um, and so we worked as hard as we could to find as many organizations that we could to endorse us. Uh, and we were uh, fortunate that uh, people were able to listen to those organizations and 
their message. And um, one thing that I wanted to mention that, that Matt said about uh, these listening sessions for, for the Cannabis Control Commission, not only will they listen, but they will read. So um, it, uh, up through October 30th, if you can't make one of these, these listening sessions and you want to have comments on the regulations that they're going to put forward, uh, they will accept written comment. So write them a letter, tell them what you think, and uh, and it's certainly certainly important for everybody to have their voice heard. I also wanted to make sure to um, give a nod to the few politicians who did join us early on, um, particularly Michelle Wu and Tito Jackson. We were toxic to everybody else. We'd go into these meetings and they wouldn't want to sit too close to us and just get a really, you know, they're sort of, you, you, why are you trying to give pop lollipops to little kids with sort of the going off of people? Um, but uh, Michelle and, and Tito, they, <clears throat> excuse me, they were there on legalization. They understood the social justice aspect of it because they had lived it and seen it, and they were they were brave when when other politicians were not. Um, and also, just a funny story from Alex Morse, who was in, was the first and maybe only mayor that came out. Only mayor. We had we did our kickoff. Then he drove in, um, it was in front of Beacon Hill, he drove in from Western Mass, made remarks, um, and then afterwards said, so um, any other mayors? Um, <laughs> and we're like, well, no, actually, um, you're the only one. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was so sincere in knowing that he was on the right side of this issue that he was taken aback by it. But, um, you know, so I just wanted to make sure to acknowledge those, those three in particular. And, and there were also some... Uh, some state legislators like Senator Brownsberger, uh, Senator Jalen, folks who had signed on. There was a there was a bill that was filed uh, in the last legislative session uh, by Dave Rogers uh, from Cambridge. Um, uh, I think it was House 1561, and it was fashioned by um, uh, Dick Evans and Mike Cutler from out in the two attorneys from out in the western part of the state who've been doing um, legalization work for many years, um, and. So they authored that bill, and um, it actually had 15 legislative sponsors, um, including those two senators and several uh, state representatives. So um, as Chris said, yes, we did have some, some, some political support, but most of uh, our opponents were on the other, were on the other side. <clears throat> we had um, Rick Steves also. He's a travel writer um, and, and broadcast uh, travel journalist for PBS. And he was so good. He donated $100,000, and he said, I'm going to come for three or four days. This was almost exactly a year ago. I think it was October. He said, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I want to be with as many people as possible. And um, I can't speak you know, highly enough about his dedication to this cause. What he talked about was he lives in Washington State. He talked about what's happening in Washington. And you know, uh, having met him, the way he is on TV is exactly the way he is in person. He just made it, he, he helped to reduce the fear that people had. And he just spoke about it in such a kind and a genuine way. And he said, look, it's happening in Washington. The stores are open. Life has gone on. It hasn't changed. We just have a lot more tax money coming in. Whereas before, that money went to gangs and cartels. And you know there was unsafe product on the street. And there were too many people. Uh, you know, um, uh, getting arrested from minority communities. And he said, it has worked. And it was just, uh, we needed it during the campaign. Again, the closing, it doesn't matter what the polls say. The, the month before election day, you know, you're just constantly in a state of panic. And uh, having Rick come around for us, it got tremendous press. The reporters really liked him. Um, 
uh, Chris's uh, firm put together a really good agenda for him. And again, when he said load me up, he was serious. And we loaded him up, we put him in every section of the state. Um, and it was, uh, it was something our opponents couldn't counter. They just didn't have somebody like that. You know, the people they brought in were sort of, it was kind of difficult for, for the public to, to buy into their uh, spiel that they, were, that they were putting out. Another great late endorsement um, was from Bob LaBelle. Yeah. Um, and he was, you know, it's one of the, in politics, you often are looking for strange bedfellows. You know, who's somebody that people won't expect to be with you? And he was one of those, and um, he's, he's, he's pretty sick, I understand, so he, um, and he, he really didn't want to be a Pied Piper on this issue either, but he felt strongly about it. We put out a press release, he talked to a reporter, and um, I, I, think it was, I think that was really helpful. For, for people who don't know who Bob Lobel is, <clears throat> he was a longtime sportscaster on WBZ-TV. Um, you know, there may be some people in the room who don't know who he is. I'm sure we'll have a little time for questions at the end, but Kara, did you have a comment? Yeah, actually, um, I, I think that, and you guys can speak to this, a lot of states, as they see initiatives put forward, there's a huge pushback from the cannabis community itself. And I think something that was a little bit more unique to Massachusetts is that you really didn't have a lot of pushback from from the, the leaders of the cannabis community themselves. Even, you know, you watched Mass Can in 2015 back Bay State repeal, but as soon as that, they realized that that wasn't what was gonna happen, they changed their tune and they jumped right on board. And aside from a, a, a couple of wishy-washy people that have been doing this for maybe a really long time and have tons of friends, um, you, did, you didn't see a lot of pushback from the community. So I think that that was, a little bit more unique to Massachusetts than I've seen in other states. Uh, that's a great point. Um, before, um, during the signature gathering phase, as Kara just pointed out, we weren't the only ones that were putting forward an initiative. There were two other ones, both supported by Mass Can. I think two separate ones. Uh, three, three other ones. Three other ones. Ma Ma Mass Can, uh, the, the membership of Mass Can voted to to back basic Correct. appeal. Yeah. So they so we saw potentially three or four. That developed a, a storyline. Journalists were crazy about what if both, what if two of these make enough signatures? What if there are two competing? <laughs> and it was a very real possibility, at least theoretically. Um, and but the others didn't get enough signatures. But what happened? was that in the end, everybody came together and uh, they came right into uh, the campaign and we welcomed them and it was a united front because uh, that's what we needed because we knew our opposition was um, well-funded, uh, fairly well-organized um, and they weren't gonna give up for anything. Um, and one thing, one thing we found from the polling also, um, during the debates, our opponents would always list the amount of groups who opposed us, and it was a long list. You know, the Chambers of Commerce, the, 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 the Association of Public Health, Association of Public Health, the Mass Medical Society, the governor, the mayor, all the DAs, all the police chiefs, all the sheriffs. We found out through focus groups and polling that voters didn't care that, you know, they may like Charlie Baker, but they don't necessarily follow Charlie Baker's advice about how to vote on a ballot referendum. Um, not just Charlie Baker, any governor. Um, so, you know, Will and I did most of these debates, and when our opponents started going down the list of people who endorsed them, we would let them do it, because we knew they weren't talking about the, the, the issues that really did push voters' buttons, and we know what those were, too, because of the polling. So they kind of worked against themselves using precious time to talk about stuff that frankly didn't push voters either way. Um, and sometimes, 
uh, you know, Jim said we, we did uh, all of these debates, um, and they were certainly exciting, but often what would happen is we would get there, and they would say, uh, I, I would say, well, where's our opponent? And they would say, well, we invited them, but they decided not to come. Um, so uh, fortunately, that they were much more focused on uh, attending these, quote, information sessions um, that were weighted in, uh, uh, totally in favor of them. Um, so sometimes we were, not often, but sometimes we were debating empty chairs, which wasn't that hard. <laughs> so before we start taking questions, um, well, why don't you just lay out where we are with the regulations, what the timelines are, so that if okay. you ever want to get into sure. the industry now. Um, Interestingly, there was a um, uh, meeting of the Cannabis Advisory Board, which is a 25-member um, organization that's charged in the statute with um, recommending uh, regulations to uh, the uh, Cannabis Control Commission, which is the five-member organization that's going to be in charge of all these regulations. Um, and they had a meeting on Tuesday, and um, they were charged with, and Matt um, is the only person here who's He's on that advisory board, and I feel bad for him because of this. But um, uh, the, the Cannabis Advisory Board was charged with coming up with their recommendations on regulations by um, November 30th of this year. And the reason that uh, there's such a tight timeline for that is because the um, Cannabis Control Commission backed up the uh, timeline from March 15th when these regulations have to be in place. Um, and decided that the only way that they were going to be able to make that timeline work is to make sure that the, uh, the advisory board had their recommendations in by November 30th. So um, by uh, March 15th, the regulations have to be in place. And as Matt said, there will be public hearings before those regulations are finalized, uh, a second round of public hearings. Um, and then uh, on April 1st, uh, applications can be accepted. And for the first two weeks, those, uh, the applications that will be considered are um, for uh, organizations that already have um, an operation structure in place. So those are people who have um, provisional registration certificates or um, final registration certificates from the Department of Public Health or folks who can show that they um, are willing to work or, or are working with communities that have been adversely um, affected by the war on drugs. So that's the two-week window for, for those applications. And then everyone else can apply uh, on April 15th, and there will be at least uh, five kinds of licenses. There will be a retail license, a cultivation license, um, a manufacturing license, a testing license, and a craft cooperative license. Um, and, um, and those licenses um, are, once the applications are filed, there's a 90-day period for the Cannabis Control Commission to consider those applications and then either um, grant them um, or deny them. And the only reason that they can deny them is either because they don't comply with the regulations that are already in place or because they don't comply with the regulations that the locality where they want to locate have, have put in place. Um, and um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. So. Um, the Cannabis Control Commission can't issue, issue any licenses any earlier than June 1st, uh, but it's anticipated that with the April 1st um, uh, application date, 
that in the 90-day waiting period, that the first licenses will be issued um, on July 1st, um, and then uh, retail operations will go into effect. And we anticipate that anyone who's already operating in the space um, and has decided to convert um, at least part of their operation from uh, a medical uh, dispensary to an adult use facility uh, will be able to sell um, to sell adult use marijuana um, on July 1st, and that's if. Uh, none of these timelines get pushed back. So just just to make that very clear about these upcoming sessions and the hearings, I mean, some things that I could think of that would be huge barriers to people in this room getting a piece of this you know, economy is excessive license fees. Like, if you want to be an edible producer or if you want to do uh, um, you know, a smaller co-op, um, with medical marijuana, they were charging $1,500 for the first rounds of licensing, $35,000 for the, actually, this is the application process, so 35,000 for the second phase of the application process, then 50 grand a year once you get a license uh, to pay to the, to the state and the local fee. So, you know, you want to make sure that a licensing for your business, the fee is going to be closer to a few thousand bucks as, a, as opposed to 50,000 bucks, and you need to come out and, and, and talk about that. Um, if you want to make sure that they're not going to require, that the, the law enforcement prohibitionists aren't going to go to these hearings and talk about the dangers of the community, despite that there's no data you know, you know, saying that businesses will present a dangerous community, but then use that to require that every business, is, even if you're just a food processor, has a $100,000 security system, then you need to come out and say that that's not necessary. When it comes to requirements uh, at the local level as well, or at the state level, when I could see uh, law enforcement prohibition is saying, well, we need to have uh, the local chief of police sign off on an application for each one of these businesses. That, you know, that could be a big barrier to you. So uh, there's uh, numerous barriers that can be put up and will be determined during this regulatory process. Yeah, it's part of a good point. Clearly, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the legislature put up a barrier with a combat and It feels like this uh, listening session could be another way to come up with ways to, you know, really afford the will of the people. Are there decentralized talking points that we could, uh, you know, uh, access that when we go to these things, we can have a consistent message or, you know, like you just gave us a couple that made a lot of sense. It feels like they could put a huge barrier economically, you know, so there's really no mom and pop, if you will, in this industry, with right. large corporations, um, which I think the things what people want, right? So, is there a I could go personally to get some of these uh, you know, best practices, ideas to share with these uh, open sessions? Um, yeah, go to our website. Uh, go to our website. We have on the website is regulatemass.com. Uh, yeah, regulatemass.com. Um, and uh, we have uh, all the lists. We have a list there of all the points that have to be made at these community meetings. You know, um, and what happens is, you know, if the voters just are leaning one way, if they don't hear that they're going to make significant revenue, up to 6% of gross sales of a, of a marijuana facility, it's important to keep in mind the average sales for the RMDs in Massachusetts now, $6 million per year. 6% of $6 million. And that's only, you know, with a limited consumer base, 42,000. How many cards are there in? Um, uh, Medical marijuana cards, $42,000. million per store right now. That's $360,000 to a town at 6%. Overnight, that's the largest property taxpayer in pretty much any town. Voters have to know this. And voters have to know that it's up to local officials where these will be located. They have the ability to determine location. Yes? I have a question, a two-part question that kind of backs up to that. 
Um, so the towns and the municipalities that have opted out of allowing marijuana establishments to come into their town, are they allowed to partake in the overall tax revenue that the state is getting? And the second part of that, it, is there a concern about oversaturation in the yes markets currently due to a lot of these towns kind of saying, hey, we want a part of this? Um, first answer is yes, they do. There's no mechanism to like steer funds away from the towns and opt out. That is being talked about, by the way, the front page story in the Globe this week. Um, how they do it would be tricky. Uh, the second part, oversaturation, um, I don't know, maybe Will could speak to that. I haven't heard that being a problem perceived of yet. Um, and I'd like to know if other states, if there's an oversaturation. I'm not sure, frankly. Maybe Will knows. Um, so, I'm sorry, the second part of your question is, that there's a, is there a concern that there will be oversaturation in the towns that have accepted marijuana commerce? Due to the fact that a lot of towns are kind of saying, hey, we don't, we don't want Well, um, let me just put this in a little bit of perspective. There are, my understanding, 35 towns in Massachusetts now that have instituted bans. There are a number of other towns that have instituted moratoria. Um, I'm a Latin guy, so that, that's plural for moratoriums. Um, and um, uh, the, thank you. The um, and and some of those moratoria are um, for the purpose of figuring out zoning. So the moratoria says the moratorium is in, in effect until a particular date or until we have zoning in effect. Um, so we're, we're not as concerned about those towns um, and. I, you know, I don't think that there's a real concern about um, oversaturation because there's also um, a, a clause in the in the initiative that says um, you you can reduce the number or, or uh, control the number of dispensaries in your um, city or town based on 20% of the number of um, off-premises liquor uh, licenses that are issued. So, for instance, um, if there are uh, 10 off-premises liquor licenses, you can control them, you can reduce the number of dispensaries, retail outlets that are available to two. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, there's a concern, even in the towns that will have them, about oversaturation. Let's there's also- more questions while we can. We only have a minute. Yes, uh, there was a question. Pam, did you have a question? Yeah. That's a good question, um, and really, it's not July first. Um, um, the the new statute says that um, that the regulations, the city regulations, the zoning regulations, and all that that are in effect at the time of application are the ones that will uh, be applied to that uh, application. So, if you apply on April first um, in a city or town that has not yet undertaken the uh, regulatory process, then there's no control, there's no local control on that. So each city and town is going to have to have their regulatory process in place by April 1st of 2018. One more. Um, I, I just want to say that it, part of what we were talking about in the beginning, more of the advocacy and getting into your own town mm -hmm. hall, there's room for more licenses. There's room for the commission to adopt a wholesale license. Um, as an advocate of education, I think there should be an educational license so that vocational training schools can actually have plants on site. Because as of right now, if you wanted to go learn about cannabis, you'd have to do so only through lecture. 
So I, I think that part of what we can do going down to going to these listening sessions and going to the hearings and going to our own towns and, and city halls and whatnot is to advocate for more opportunity. Uh, five licenses is good. It's a great start, but we can do better. Those are the mandated licenses, and it's also important to remember that there are permissive licenses for on-site consumption, for um, uh, one-day or one-event licenses, for catering licenses, for delivery licenses, for research uh, licenses, and so all of those um, are mentioned, but I believe the, the language says, um, but not limited to these kinds of licenses. So uh, there's permission for the Cannabis Control Commission to have several other different kinds of licenses. We suggested a catering license, uh, and certainly educational licenses are important too. So, so uh, for that. that's our time. Thank you very much. Um, Please, anybody with any other questions, we're going to be right outside, so please ask us. Thank you very much.